I love being a journalist. I think it's one of the most challenging things, but one of the most fulfilling things. And I think that if you're the type of person who is curious, loves learning and trying to understand things, and if you have a sense of wanting to help people or fix problems or even just connect dots, it's a great it's a great profession to be in. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Marielle Padilla. Marielle is a general assignment reporter for The 19th, which is an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. Its name invokes the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. She's been with them for two years after working for a year as a reporting fellow for The New York Times, and she was part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage at both The Times and while interning at the Cincinnati Enquirer. Hi, Marielle. Hello. Thanks for having me. So with all that said, what's your journalism origin story? My journalism origin story probably takes me back to college. I was an English major, strategic communications, marketing. I had no plans to go into journalism. And I just had to take a journalism class as a requirement. And it got me out on the streets of Oxford, Ohio. I went to Miami University in Ohio. And I actually thought I'd hate it because I'm typically more of an introvert, would rather be reading than asking strangers questions. But there was something about that class that really forced me to get out and talk to people about problems going on in this small town. And it it was when I wrote my first story about homelessness and there was an interesting story about lunch ladies <laughs> that I did that actually had a lot of import in the community that I realized that my writing could actually do something for a community. And that's when I kind of started shifting gears, I think, towards a more journalistic trajectory. Impactful journalism has been a theme of the 80 plus episodes that we've done. Now you're Filipino. Was there anything mm-hmm. in your upbringing that was foreshadowing as far as you becoming a storyteller? Not really. Both of my parents are immigrants, so they came here as students and they are both in the STEM field. My mom's a mathematician, dad's an engineer. So they kind of always wanted their children to follow follow them and you know have stable lives. And I was kind of the black sheep, I'd say. I think my, my brother went into math. My other brother went to med school eventually, and I was the English major. So I think I think the only indication was probably that I always had a book with me, that I was interested in stories. How did you get the job at the 19th? That's a great question. I was a fellow at the New York Times, and this was early 2020, maybe late 2019. And the 19th didn't exist yet, so there was no way for me to look it up. But I was desperately looking for jobs. And the director of fellowships at the Times just happened to be friends with the founder and CEO of the 19th, Emily Ramshaw. And so he actually flagged to me that she was looking to hire young talent for something that doesn't exist yet. And so I kind of just took a risk and she actually reached out to me on Twitter. And so we had we had a conversation before I applied, but I'm very, very happy with how it all turned out. How have you seen it grow? 
oh, it's grown exponentially, it feels like. I mean, when I started, I was on a team, I think there were maybe seven of us reporters, seven. We now have, I mean, 50 people in this company. I feel like we keep adding people every month. We are, we had a first event, you know, that only had, it was only virtual. So we only had, you know, a couple thousand or so people join, but I, I would say the 19th is now very well known or more well known in journalistic circles. We were lucky to be the first outlet to have an, have a public interview with now vice president Kamala Harris after it was announced that she was going to be VP and when Meghan Markle came back to the U.S., we were we were the first to get a public interview with her, too. So I think that that kind of helped help the branding. Where are you based, by the way? I should have asked that at the start, too. Yeah, I am based in Indianapolis right now. We are a newsroom that's all over the country. So we have reporters in D.C., California, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Georgia, for sure. But we're all over. Gotcha. Well, uh, one thing that we will talk about in a little bit is uh, data journalism, and and there's Mm -hmm. uh, certainly some math and statistics in there. But I want to talk about the 19th, whose journalism is, as they say on their site, powered by readers who believe in our mission to empower women, people of color, and the LGBTQ plus community with the information, community, and tools they need to be engaged in our democracy. With Mm -hmm. that in mind, what makes the 19th story distinct? That's a good question. And something we're asked a lot, actually, because we're so new. I think the 19th has really carved a wedge for itself in the news landscape by finding ways to talk about policy and national issues and and other things that are going on in the news cycle, but focus on populations that are usually underrepresented and over-impacted is typically the case. And so we focus on, as you mentioned already, the intersection between gender politics and policy. And that's also brought us to to talking to different people that other outlets don't usually center. So explain your role for them. Sure. I'm a general assignment reporter, which basically means I'm a reporter that can write about anything, whatever needs to be written about. I tend to write about national security type type issues. I, I cover the military quite a bit, veterans, that that type of thing. And what characterizes your writing in particular? I would say, personally, I like talking to to real people. I mean, I think it's easy when you talk about policy stories to only talk to politicians and press people and, and other advocates that already have the microphone. And I think something the 19th is really good at is trying to find the people that policy affects on the ground and in the real world and talk to them. And so I would say I, I spend a lot of my time trying to focus on who I can talk to and, and how I can reach them. One of the things that I noticed in reading through the stories on the site over the last week is I, I can say this genuinely about every story I, I read, that I felt considerably better educated about every <laughs> subject after I read them. And I thought it was interesting because the stories aren't necessarily that long, but there's so much packed into them. And there's kind of distinct sections where there's somewhat of an educational section. And there's a section of what you're talking about with integrating human-centered things. I was just curious about the, in particular, about the educational aspect of, of trying to write these pieces. 
Yeah, I think it's, at least for me, when I'm, when I'm going to write, I think it's important to remember that events and policy decisions, they don't happen in a vacuum. There's usually a before and there will be an after. And I think the, the educational portion is just me attempting to get a historical context into a paragraph or two, just to help better understand an issue. I think that's, that's really important for informing an audience. And it's, it's very well done across the site. So the kinds of stories that you write about, I'll read off just a few of the headlines here. You already articulated on a couple. We're being hunted one year after Atlanta spa shootings. Asian Americans are now more scared than ever. You reached out to female members of Congress on the one-year anniversary of January 6th. You wrote about the only all-Black women's unit sent to Europe during World War II. They were awarded a congressional medal. And more recently, you wrote about the vote on the abortion ban in Indiana's state Senate. So as you said, Mm -hmm. a lot of different types of things, the military aspect, a number of different things there. You also wrote about Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. It's a comprehensive description, a complete recounting. But there were a couple of things in there that were distinct. I'm going to read a a paragraph, if you don't mind. Meadows was just one of several men who demanded that Hutchinson, a woman decades younger with far less power, relay their demands to one another and help solve problems. And then at the end, without being asked, she did what generations of women aides would have been expected to do. Quote, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup. I'm curious about the, the choices that were made within that story, essentially to do what you, you said the, the 19th does uh, mm-hmm. and how you came to, to write that one. So I've been covering and following along January 6th since it happened for the 19th. So I've been watching all of these hearings. And this one was uh, a really interesting testimony, not just because she was a young woman, although that's definitely interesting (laughs) to the 19th. But after I listened to her full testimony, I spoke with my editors and we had a discussion about what is the 19th's role in covering this? What is what is our takeaway that's not just, you know, what everyone else is going to say? And so we ended up talking about that intersection that I talked about between politics, policy, and gender. And it just struck me in Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony that all of these very powerful men throughout the day on January 6th were coming to her and asking her for help you know, according to her testimony. And so we decided to kind of focus on that angle. And so I think the the two sections that you read really highlighted that that is the, that is the portion that we wanted to focus on. Yep. I love the, the ending of that one. Then you and another writer, Barbara Rodriguez, did some reporting on Liz Cheney's comments during the January 6th mm-hmm. hearing as they related to centering women. You talked to, so this piece was much more than just that. You talked to people with some historical perspective on what Cheney said, both on what she said and what she wore. Can you mm-hmm. explain that piece and how you put that one together? Yes. Yeah, so very similar. We watched the hearings and then we had a brief discussion before we we dove into reporting. And what struck us that time was that Cheney's closing statements were almost entirely about women. And it was Cheney herself that was invoking the role that women have had in democracy and in in strengthening and keeping democracy. And so that was interesting to us. And so our first inclination was to reach out to people who knew much more than we did, in this case, historians and other experts on on this topic. And so 
my colleague Barbara and I just reached out and did a lot of interviews. And that's kind of how that one came together. What are the differences between the conversations that you have with the editors of the 19th and the conversations that you have with editors at the other places that you've worked? Very different. So as you mentioned, I've worked at the New York Times and the Cincinnati Inquirer, and I did a, an investigative stint at Columbia in between those two. And I would say that the 19th is very focused on its mission. So we very regularly have conversations about the angle of stories and, and what's not being said, what we could be saying or should be saying. Whereas when I worked at the New York Times, I think the, the mission, I don't want to botch this, but it's to inform or to help people understand or something less less focused on on an audience. And so the conversations that I had with editors at the Times was more, is this accurate? Can we get it out first? And can we talk to more people than our competitors? It was more focused on, um, I would say, the speed at which information could come and not necessarily the context in which it could be provided. How did these stories fit within the overall uh, nature of the site in terms of what else is on the site? Well, we have a reporter who focuses on healthcare uh, specifically, another who focuses on the economy, a couple people in D.C. We have a breaking news team. We have an LGBTQ plus reporter. And so we have different beats, but we all operate under the same mission so we're all still asking the same questions about who we're talking to, who's being left out of conversations, but focused on on those big areas. Now, you've been covering abortion rights recently, too, uh, mm -hmm. in a couple of different places. Can you share what you've done and what, what work has gone into doing those stories? I recently, last week, Indiana started its special session to look into passing new legislation abortion rights. And I just so happen to live in Indianapolis. So the Capitol building is, you know, less than a mile away from my house. And so I brought it up to my editors and I said, I think this is a really great opportunity for us to be on the ground in a state house that has a lot of import in, in the national conversation. And so they gave me some time to go run around Indianapolis for a bit. And so I did that last week and followed the Senate. They listened to public testimony for a couple of days. They argued amongst themselves about what should be in this bill. And, and the Senate passed it last Saturday. What was the most, I guess, interesting or noteworthy part of the reporting experience of that one? Yeah, I think that because I've been reporting remotely and for national outlets for quite a bit now, it's much different to be on the ground and come face to face with with you know crowds of people in this case there were pro abortion anti abortion people in the thousands and it's it's always a lot different i think to see that emotion and that energy in person and so even though i wasn't able to quote you know the hundreds of people that i that i saw or heard from it definitely informed my understanding and the nuances of a story as large as abortion access. When you speak to politicians, whether about that or about other topics, and you have mm -hmm. to go through the process of tracking them down, what is that experience like? 
I think it's all about being persistent. It's it's not as hard as you think it would be because they have press people dedicated to talking to the press. So if if you just bug their their press secretary enough times, I've I've had I've had some good luck just being persistent, I think, and trying to get a hold of people. Who was the most interesting one to interview? Oh man. I would say I don't know if I can choose one, but there was a story that I had to reach out to every woman in Congress, U.S. Congress, and I reached out to them all at least three or four times. It was after the January 6th, about a month or two after January 6th, and I wanted to hear from as many of them as I could and get their accounts. So I these were some of the most non-typical politician interviews that I've ever done in that, I mean, there were tears, there were moments where I had to wait for them to kind of collect themselves. I think that this was just like such a raw time for these politicians and I was catching them as they were processing. And it was really, it was really interesting for me to talk to them as, as humans and not as people who are pushing, you know, policy and, and uh, pre-written statements. Seeing them in a, certainly in a a completely different light. Mm -hmm. I've asked you about, a lot of different stories, but I, I think I should ask you about some that, that you're proud of. What have you written in, <laughs> in the last, let's say, since you joined the 19th that you're most proud of? Uh, well, I already spoke about the January 6th stuff, which yep. I'm very proud of, but I will say that I'm also very proud of the coverage that we did around the 9-11 anniversary, which also just happened to fall around the same time that the U.S. ended its longest war and we pulled our our troops out i think that i was able to talk to a lot of groups involved there i was able to talk to veterans who had fought in the war years before i was able to talk to active military members who were trying to process what was happening in real time i was able to talk to some of the advocacy groups that were on the ground in afghanistan some of the resettlement groups here refugees. And so I think a lot of the work that I did around that time was something that I'm I'm really proud of. I think I was able to capture a moment and talk to a lot of a lot of different groups that were connected. What was the hard what's the hardest story you've done for them since you've been there? Oh, hardest story. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if I can I don't know if I can pinpoint a hardest story, but I would say it's never easy to talk to people who are very vulnerable. And I think that I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are going through mental health, you know, challenges or trying to rework through trauma through the interview. And so I, I think that those types of stories are always really hard. Another group of people that you talked to were Afghan refugees, women resettling Mm -hmm. in the United States. Can you tell us about, about writing, working on that and the, 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 what went into it? Yeah. So that was, I would say the hardest part of that was just getting access to the refugees. I had to go through resettlement agencies and everything was moving so fast and chaotic and they didn't know where they would be the next day. But I was very grateful that a few of the refugees were able to hop on the phone with an American journalist they'd never met to tell their stories. But yeah, that was that was really, really cool for me. So you got your master's in data journalism from Columbia. Why did you pursue data journalism and how has that been useful to you? Yes, I think it's just the way my my brain is wired. I'm a very data person. I work 
and I would work in spreadsheets all the time if I could. And I knew that I'm interested in, as I mentioned, impact stories. And I was interested in investigative type stories and data just seemed like the skill that I wanted, but didn't have. And so it made sense for me to try to get into that, get into that program. If those were the types of stories that I wanted to pursue. Is that something that you would recommend? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you have any interest in data journalism, it's the way of the future. And I, I definitely ask everyone to kind of try to beef up their skills. It really helps reporting, I think. So I want to take you off of the 19th and talk about the other few places that you've worked. Can you explain the work that you did in your internship that that was part of the Pulitzer Prize winning coverage by the Cincinnati Inquirer for their coverage mm-hmm. of the opioid crisis? Yes. I was there for 10 weeks, a very, very short time. I was the I was on the, the breaking news desk, so lots of local crime in Cincinnati. And that summer, they just so happened to be working on this huge project where the entire newsroom was going to come together for a week, and it was going to be an all-hands-on-deck situation, 24-7. They were going to f- go into the community and observe all the different ways that the opioid epidemic affects every aspect of Cincinnati. So for that week, we had reporters going on ride-alongs with police officers. Others were finding the homeless communities under the bridge. We had people going to child services, the courts. And I happened to be tasked with going to the jail every morning because you have to go to the jail to see the arrest slips Uh, from the day before. And that's the only way that you can see them. So I went every morning and looked through all of the arrests and kind of highlighted all the drug charge related ones. And I ended up coming back to the office every day and adding them to a spreadsheet, which I thought would just help better track, you know, where, where people were getting arrested, what they were getting arrested for. And that helped fill some of the gaps in the timeline when they needed, you know, when they needed to know what was going on in Cincinnati at 3 a.m. on the west side of town, they could consult the spreadsheet. I read that the the editor in an article in the Columbia Journalism Review praised your work in assisting in that. Now, the way that you found out that you won a Pulitzer, at least <laughs> one of the two, was commemorated in an interesting way. And I bring this mm-hmm. up because... In another episode that we have airing this month, we have a former Jeopardy contestant who is a journalist. Amazing. Uh, In this case, we have (laughs) someone who was a Jeopardy clue. Explain that. Yes. So I was in, I was a student at Columbia at the time that the Cincinnati Choir won the Pulitzer. And so I just so happened to be in a night class. It was a data investigative class. That was one floor above, it was the room above where the Pulitzers are announced. And I'm sitting in class, the teacher is talking. I am not supposed to be looking at my phone, but a girl across the table from me texted me in the middle of class and said, hey, I I think you just want a Pulitzer. And I was like, that cannot be true. Because at this point, I had not even been paying attention to what was up for an award. I I mean, I was a student, so I was kind of just drowning in homework. But I I mean, I checked and my name was on the thing and I immediately texted my my family and was like, I think I think I just want a Pulitzer. 
<laughs> That's cool. And Jeopardy commemorated it in a clue as well. So yes. you did touch on briefly what you did at the New York Times. You worked at the Breaking News Desk where you covered some serious mm -hmm. things, police shootings mm -hmm. of civilians. But I also found a few, I think what we would call just a well-rounded group of features. You wrote a piece <laughs> about competitive marble racing. You did a piece mm -hmm. about people driving onto Canadian military bases because of Pokemon Go. <laughs> you, you did a piece on how a, a dispute, an actual town dispute, if I'm not mistaken, about how early can you put up holiday decorations. Yeah. And then more serious, an obituary. And I think it's fantastic that you had that you wrote an obituary in the New York Times within your time there for the last mm -hmm. survivor of the Hindenburg explosion. Mm -hmm. So all in all, what was the New York Times experience like? I mean, I think you basically just encapsulated the chaos that was working on the breaking news desk there. I mean, it's a 24-7 operation. And there's always at least a couple journalists, you know, ready to go just in case something breaking happens. But that being said, there isn't always, you know, a mass shooting going on or a forest fire, you know. So we were also encouraged to have these longer, more evergreen stories to work on in the meantime. And so I think the Marvel story that you mentioned that was that was in the middle of COVID. This was right after all the sports things had shut down and everyone was still trying to figure out how to cope in the world. And my editor flagged to me that, that this was happening. And he he just thought that it would be a really fun thing to dive into in my off time. So that's where that story came from. Similar to the to the Pokemon Go story, there was a more local paper that had written about it and it was flagged to me and I thought that it was hilarious. And we had some of the documents that showed some of the internal documents that showed what the military there was saying about these people trespassing to play Pokemon Go, which were the highlight of that story. <laughs> and holiday um, decorations, I'm not, I don't remember how that came about, but it must have been a slow day at work because a couple editors really wanted me to to dive into that one, which was hilarious for me to do and the Hindenburg that was a great very stressful time we actually on the breaking news desk if it was late night or a weekend or just a weird time and the obituary desk wasn't at work the breaking news desk was charged with writing these obituaries so while I was there for only a year I wrote quite a few and that one I particularly remember because he passed away I think it was a, like a Saturday or a Sunday and there were like zero people in the office except for me and a couple other breaking news people and it was just like it went from zero to a hundred and I had a couple hours to try to get this great man's obituary together but luckily I was able to talk to his son and it all worked out but that was that was a fun time. The standard for obituaries at the New York Times is, is certainly so high. I, I think it's, as I said, I think it's very impressive. I've seen the documentary and I recommend it to others, which covers that very well. Um, mm -hmm. And you wanna, you were part of a Pulitzer Prize winning team there too, am I right? Yeah, that was given to the entire newsroom that covered COVID-related coverage that year. And I because I was on the breaking news desk, we were very heavily involved in the 24-7 live feed that was going and I believe is still going but it was started in 2020 and updated every 30 minutes 
with something new. And so, yeah, it, the, the pandemic definitely changed the nature of, of my job at the New York times. And I noticed that on your Twitter page, there is a text, I'm guessing it's from a family member that says, <laughs> I'm just letting you know, you didn't win a Pulitzer this year. So yeah. <laughs> I guess the, the streak was broken. But yeah. you're you're still relatively young. I'm curious how you view the profession and what you want to do long term in journalism. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I don't know how much I can envision my long term future. I kind of just take it, you know, job by job. But I love being a journalist. I think it's one of the most challenging things, but one of the most fulfilling things. And I think that. If you're the type of person who is curious, loves learning and trying to understand things, and if you have a sense of wanting to help people or fix problems or even just connect dots, it's a great, it's a great profession to be in. That quote, I think, pretty much articulates the purpose of the podcast. And the podcast <laughs> is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask you to do likewise. Is there someone that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good journalism work? Yes. And I've been thinking about this all day because I knew you were going to ask me this. And there are so many people and so many outlets that I admire, but one that I don't think that people think about very often, which is why I'm going to say it, is MIT Technology Review. They do their biweekly or bi-monthly magazine and I get their newsletter in my email every so often and they just do really really good coverage of technology and all the ways in which technology intersects with um, the world and it's a great example of good journalism meets great expertise and great access and they publish some of the best stories when it comes to technology that I can't find anywhere else. The MIT Technology Review. We'll be sure to mm -hmm. check that. We'll be sure to check that out. Marielle, Marielle Padilla, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your future. Hopefully more Pulitzers to come. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated this. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod. And you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.